Today on Truth and Politics and Culture, what happens when we can't talk to each other? Cyber attacks worries rise after AT&T customers lose service. Trump maintains a massive lead over Haley heading into the South Carolina primary. Who will Trump's VP be, and why does it matter so much in this year's election cycle? All this and more on this Friday edition of Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. It's time to crank it up. Good morning, everybody. Welcome in to a backpatting day, Friday edition of Truth and Politics and Culture with Dr. Tony Beam. Appreciate you joining us today. Reach around, pat yourself on the back, and say congratulations because you made it till Friday. All you got to do is get to 5 o'clock. That's a piece of cake, right? So hang in there. The weekend's coming. Hope you're having a good day so far. We got rain here in the upstate of South Carolina. Man, it was pouring down the rain when I got out of bed this morning. Do you know how hard that is on a Friday even to you're laying there in bed, you just wake up, and the first thing you hear is it sounds like, you know, some giant is pouring rainwater out of a boot on your on this roof of your house. And it, it's just not a real motivator, you know what I'm saying, to get up and get out and start doing stuff. So I had to kind of push myself a little bit this morning. I'm not a, I'm not much of a rain guy. I'm not much of a winter guy. I'm a spring and summer guy. Um, you know, I, I just, the hotter the better for me. I mean, I honestly, I, I like it to be, the temperature to be warm. Um, now, I mean, you get in 100 degrees, you, nobody likes that. But I'm talking about, you know, upper 80s, 90 degrees. I'm, I'm cool with that actually cool, even though I'm being hot. Um, so, uh, I'm ready for winter to be done. That's the bottom line for this little, uh, ramble. I'm, uh, I'm just ready for some, some good old spring weather for a little while. And then, uh, we'll, we'll start getting, you know, get the temperature on up there. That'll suit me. Yesterday was a great day at North Greenville university. Of course, every day is a great day at North Greenville university where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and society. But today, yesterday was a very special day because we had David uh, Bonson with us, and uh, he's going to be on the program, by the way, coming up in the next week or so. Um, we've got to work out a time. I was hoping he would be able to do the show this morning uh, before he has to head out, but uh, he, he was doing an, another set of interviews this morning while this show was going on. So we're going to set up a time down the road for him to be on this program and, and let me just tell you, I was blown away by him yesterday. If you don't know who David Bonson is, he's the he's head of the Bonson Group. It's an investment um, group, uh, financial managers. Uh, he's got about $5 billion under management right now. He was uh, one of the, the top people at Morgan Stanley, and then he struck out on his own. Um, he's been doing what he's doing for about, I think uh, he said, uh, 14 years, no, maybe maybe it was 2014 when he started, 2010, sometime along in there. Anyway, um, he's he's had his own company for a while now, and it it's just uh, he was an incredible speaker. I mean, talking about 
so many things that he talked about uh, as far as theologically the the need for work and the fact that work is a good thing in the eyes of God. You know, there are a lot of people, and I've heard this in the church many times, uh, work is referred to as a product of the fall, something that we have to do because sin entered the world. And that kind of paints a picture that Adam was just kind of lounging around in the garden uh, before the fall. But the Bible says that God instructed Adam to tend to the garden and, and so to work. And yes, the fall has certainly affected work, but work is not something that we should apologize for. It's not something we should turn away from. It's, it's uh, not something that we should, we should engage in for a certain number, a number of years in order to get to the point that we can retire. Um, work is something that is us entering into sort of the creative process with God. Now, we, we're not creative in the sense that we can create out of nothing. God is the only one who can do that. But we take the world that God has given us and the materials that God has given us, and we create using those materials. Um, we engage in creativity and use the brains that God has given us, and we, we, we sort of step in and lean in. And that part of us that's created in the image of God gives us the motivation to be creative and to make things and to make the, the world better in the way that we create. And so it's a, it was a great, it's really a great concept. And another thing he mentioned that I'm going to talk to him about when we have him on the show is at first I thought he said that the church created the idea of a midlife crisis, but that's not what he said. He said that the church actually um, it contributes to the idea of a midlife crisis in, in one way, and that is that a lot of times that we will have these men's retreats and as he was saying this, I was thinking to myself, yeah, I, I've been in a men's retreat before where I, where I hear the message that he was about to give. He said, we, we have these men's, men's retreats, and we tell them that, yeah, you've got to work to support your family, and yeah, you, you need to uh, make sure that you keep food on the table, but you've got to, what, what you really need to do is many of you have been building your company, you've been building your business, you've been working hard. And now it's time to get on to the real meaning of life, which is the spiritual side of life. And he called that dualism. In fact, he said it was uh, sort of a form of Gnosticism um, in, in that we separate the value of work and life with our family when those things should actually be uh, melded together. So anyway, I'm looking forward to reading the book, and, and I'm... I can see what he's talking about when we lit, when we belittle accomplishment, when we tell somebody that they've it, 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 maybe they are working too hard. But when we say that, we shouldn't say that in the context of creating an idea that work is bad or that work is a distraction from what we really should be doing, which is building our spiritual life. Uh, we really should be doing both things at the same time. We should be working producing, co-creating in a sense, not creating out of nothing, but creating out of what God gives us, um, making the world better, doing all things for God's glory. We should be doing that at the same time that we're growing spiritually and also taking care of our family. So we see it as a complete picture rather than 
work is over here and it's bad. Family's over here and it's good. Leisure time's over here and 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 it's good. But you know, when we have to go to the office, that's bad. And that's a false dichotomy that we need to make sure as Christians that we're kind of pushing out of the way so that we can again again regain this idea that work is a good thing and enter into it with joy and do it with a sense of purpose and that we are glorifying God and uh, adding to the value of his creation. So anyway, it was good. I, I really enjoyed um, David Bonson, and I would recommend him to you. Uh, I would recommend his his new book um, that it, it I think is um, is is very good, and I'm gonna have to. I left it back in the bedroom. <laughs> I didn't make it to our luxurious dining room studio this morning with it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, I'll get the title of it for you. Um, I just I picked it up last night. He he signed it for me. I haven't had a chance to read it, but a lot of the concepts that he shared. Full time. That's the name of it. I knew it would come to him. Um, full time is the name of the book, which is kind of a, a pushback against the idea of um, you know half time or part time or you know some some other type of approach to work that doesn't incorporate all of the things that God has called us to do. So you can hear David Bonson. He has a podcast. You can uh, look him up. Uh, of course, uh, listen to this podcast first, obviously. Um, but you certainly broaden your horizons and listen to David's podcast. He also makes appearances on other podcasts, uh, including um, the uh, things that are, that are put out. He's been on Breakpoint with, from the Colson Center. Uh, he's been interviewed by John Stone Street, The World and Everything in It which is um, a World Magazine's uh, podcast, essentially. And he does a lot of writing for World. He uh, worked some with uh, DeSantis, helping him to come to his conclusions about how to make Florida's economy better. And, of course, Florida's economy is booming. So a lot of good stuff, and we were really glad to have him at North Greenville. I sat at the table last night, and I'm not going to reveal the guy's name because I don't have his permission, but... It was so cool. I, I, I sat at the table last night with a guy who ran a, a business out of Atlanta that insured major athletes. And he started out with him and his wife and ended up being him and his wife and 498 more employees, 500 people working for this company. Um, and he sold the company a few years ago and decided to uh, that he liked the Greenville area, and he moved to, moved to Greenville. It's building a house on Kiwi. Just a, but just an engaging, um, intelligent, amazing guy who started this company, and, and it turned into uh, relationships with Michael Jordan, with Lance Armstrong, with Tiger Woods, with other major superstar athletes that took advantage of his company's services for insurance, but also for uh, risk management. He began to kind of lean into the risk management side of things, working with the PGA and other entertainment-oriented companies to manage the risk and to make sure that they're properly insured. So it's just, it was just fascinating. And, and now he's talking, he's starting a, a business. It's, just, it's a startup. It's not uh, out there, I don't think, yet, but he's, he's working on it. And it's going to be called Redirection Quest. And the purpose of the business is going to be to find these college athletes that excel, uh, that end up going into the majors, but they never get past 
the minor league or they end up going and trying out for a football team, but they get cut, uh, made a professional football team or any other sport that they uh, excel in, in college and they almost make it to the pro level, but then something happens. Maybe, maybe they get injured. Maybe they're just not quite fast enough, big enough, but, but they end up with nothing. I mean, you know, what do we do now? This was going to be my career. And this new business, which is actually going to be a ministry, if you ask me, um, is to help these people that find themselves in those situations to be able to plug into companies and corporations like Nike, um, other companies where they can get good jobs, take care of their families, and continue to contribute and make a difference in the world. And I just, you know, I got to tell you, that, that I, I told him at the table, I said, look, you're, you're not starting just another company. Uh, with the purpose of somehow making money, you're you're doing you're, you're engaging in ministry, making people's lives richer, and helping them to transition in a very challenging and difficult time in their life. And he had, he said to me immediately that he was he wanted his company to, company to honor God and to uh, reflect the idea in in some way of redemption, the fact that we. You know, that, that God gives us gifts and abilities and he wants us to use them. And just because we don't use them in, in one direction that it seems like they're going to be used, then we can expand and continue to, be, to make a difference in the world. And I just, I really like that idea. All right, um, on with the show. We, next week in Columbia on Thursday, the Senate Medical Affairs Full Committee is going to meet to consider the gender bill. Um, so please put that on your prayer list. It'd be a good thing if we could have one meeting. It took three subcommittee meetings to get the gender bill out of subcommittee to the full committee. It would be good if we could get the, the bill to the floor by the end of next week, uh, because that's where the real debate's going to begin about, you know, I never thought it would be controversial in South Carolina to simply ask the question, should we pr- protect minors from having, you know, life-altering irreversible, gender-mutilating surgery? Uh, Should we protect minors from having puberty blockers that have the potential of ruining their bone density for the rest of their life? Should we uh, protect minors from cross-hormone treatments that we don't even know some of the results of, long-term results of what that causes? So, um, I, you know, it, I thought this would be a fairly simple process. The strength of the vote in the House, like 83 to 26, I felt like would carry this bill um, and, and cause the Senate to maybe fast track it. And, and, and it's not that it's being, it's being buried. I don't want to give the wrong impression here. I mean, um, I think people are trying to give everybody an opportunity to speak into this bill, to give the opponents an opportunity to uh, take shots at it, but at the same time, to robustly defend the idea that protecting minors is something that we should be doing in South Carolina, particularly from all these things that are, that are, that you know, it, you're making a decision as a minor that you cannot reverse, and you have to live with it for the rest of your life. Um, just, uh, you know, to me, that's common sense that you protect minors from that. But um, it, hopefully it's going to get through the full committee. I think it will. And then the Senate floor, uh, there'll be some robust debate. I mean, I, there are a lot of Democrats that don't like this bill. Now, I'm not suggesting that it's a complete uh, Democrat. It's going to be all Democrats that vote against it. 
But there's no question <clears throat> that there are a lot more Republicans that are in favor of this and pushing this idea than there are Democrats. And some of the arguments, you know, against the bill are just don't make any sense to me. Um, and I, and listening to all the subcommittee testimony, um, it, it the the science in this particular issue is definitely on the side of those who think minors should be protected. So next Thursday, um, that's when that bill will come before the full committee. Um, see if there's something else I was going to tell you about. Yesterday, the South Carolina Baptist Convention had their impact conference, and it's one of the one of the best conferences the convention puts on, and uh, just a ton of people at the mill in Spartanburg yesterday. As DJ Horton is the pastor there, it's just an incredible church, uh, making the difference in a lot of people's lives. Uh, DJ's a great preacher, uh, a really good leader, and um, it was just good to see a lot of my friends yesterday at um, over at at the mill. Um, you know, I've been around long enough now that I know a lot of people in South Carolina and have had some good friendships and um, have made really good friendships over the years, good relationships. And when we get, all get together, I'm reminded that God made us for this purpose, uh, to be in relationship with each other. You know, you, God is perpetually in relationship with himself. You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We have a triune God who doesn't live in isolation, even though he's, he is one, he's also three. And that actually, because we're created in his image, we're created with a desire for fellowship and friendship and on, on a lot of different levels. And uh, it, was just, it was just good yesterday to get to see some folks I don't get to see every day. All right, um, you know, here, here's a question for you. Uh, what would happen if, if we just didn't have the ability to talk to each other anymore? I mean, what, what does that look like? What if we can't get connected to the Internet through our phones? Uh, what happens if we can't call 911? Well, did, 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 did all of this happen to you yesterday? I mean, there were people in the upstate that were having problems with their cell phones. In fact, millions of people woke up yesterday, and instead of being able to check the latest news or uh, be able to call in sick to work, <laughs> not that everybody does that, but they realized that their mobile phone had... SOS, where their connecti uh, connectivity strength bars should have been. You know, when you look up there and it tells you you got one, two, three, four bars, whatever your phone does, uh, a lot of people looked up there and it, it said SOS. And so they freaked out and started, um, you know, using landlines or uh, hopping uh, on online on the computers trying to, to figure out, you know, are we under some kind of attack here? Uh, is it, does it say SOS because the United States is in trouble? But AT&T and their subsidiary, Cricket Wireless, had a massive outage. That's what caused all this yesterday. Areas hardest hit in the country by disruptions were Dallas, Atlanta, Houston, Raleigh, San Francisco, and Tennessee. But there were pockets of outages just about everywhere. In fact, the people in here in South Carolina, I think my daughter was having trouble with her phone. Now, I didn't have any trouble yesterday. I, I would never have known anything about this, and I have AT&T, but I wouldn't have known anything about this unless it was all over the news or, you know, as I said, my daughter was having trouble with her phone. So service was restored to most users by the middle of the afternoon yesterday, and by the end of the day, AT&T was reporting that the outage was due to a software update. 
they say that it happened uh, to the application and execution of an incorrect process used as we were expanding our network. So in corporate speak, somebody, if you take it out of corporate speak, that's what corporate speak is right there. Somebody messed up. I mean, somebody um, really missed the mark here uh, as they were doing this software application update. And when you say incorrect process, that just simply means the people that were in charge of this did something that caused the outage. But And, and I, I'll tell you this, apparently there were some people awake in Washington because by the middle of the afternoon, the FTC, the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI all said they were launching an investigation to see what happened. So they're not buying completely AT&T's explanation, and neither a good portion of the people who were affected. Now, uh, you know, what happens when an event like this happens and, you know, a, a, a significant number of people don't like the explanation that the company gives for the problem? So then we let the speculation and the conspiracy, conspiracy theories begin. A NASA came out, a NASA spokesman came out and speculated that the outage could have been caused by two large solar flares that happened Wednesday afternoon and early Thursday. And, and that corresponds roughly with the timing of the outage because you, what you had is people started noticing that the phones were not working at about 3 o'clock in the morning yesterday. So then it, it continued. in. That would have been 3 o'clock in the morning Thursday, but it continued into the afternoon. Uh, but Dr. Ryan French of the National Solar Observatory said that the U.S. was not affected by the flares, that it was just a coincidence. That, yeah, there were, there were some pretty significant solar flares, but that that really wasn't the problem. Some say it was a cyber security issue. Um, a lot were concerned that this could be the work of a major enemy of the United States or even a terrorist attack. And part of that grew out of the fact that last month, if you remember, we talked about this on the on the program, FDI, FBI Director Christopher Wray told business leaders, quote, you might find your companies harassed and hacked, targeted by a web of corporate CC, uh, CCP proxies. That would be the Chinese. Uh, hackers are lurking in your power stations, phone companies, and other infrastructure trying to take them down. He also said that Chinese cyber warfare worldwide was at a fever pitch. And that comes at a time when there are reports coming out of China saying that they've launched something called Volt Typhoon, which is a cyber operation aimed at ports, gas lines, and power stations around the world, but particularly here in the United States. So evidently the Chinese are trying to mess with our power grid, our water systems, our port systems, and who knows what else. And, we, you know, the, the question is, are they good enough to do this? Is their technology, because um, have they come to the point that they're able to get into our networks and affect them? And then the other question is, what would that mean, which Senator Marco Rubio raised this question yesterday, what would that mean when China got, gets ready to invade Taiwan? The conventional wisdom says that right before they hit Taiwan, that they would attack the United States with a massive cyber attack that would paralyze a lot of our systems and actually leave us in the dark. Now, look, I have no idea. Um, I, I, I tend to think that a lot of these reports are overblown. Um, I think they are, 
not necessarily designed to scare us, but that, you know, when it appears that China or one of our other enemies has some kind of capability, then immediately everybody jumps to the conclusion that it's going to be successful, that it's going to work. You know, the same thing happened this past week with this idea of Russia being able to put a nuclear weapon in space or Russia being able to uh, disrupt all of the United States satellite communications uh, because of something that they were going to put in space. And it kind of came out of an intelligence committee that this is the greatest national security threat that we face, and it, it needs to be declassified so every American can know everything about it. And then we find out, well, they, yeah, the Russians are developing a system that could put a nuke in space and could interfere with American satellites, but they don't have it yet, and it hasn't been deployed. So, you know, we heard about Russian supersonic missiles, and then we see in the war in Ukraine that they may be supersonic, but American technology, Israeli technology, technology of the Western allies that we have apparently has shot down a couple of those missiles. So they're not as impervious to our defense systems as Russia claimed and as some people in the United States claimed. Um, so in, in, in any event, uh, I, I, it just seems that when these things begin to come out, sometimes they're the conspiracy theory in us, the, uh, the skepticism that we have of government, and believe me, we, we need to have a healthy skepticism of government. Uh, there's no question the government's blind to us in a lot of different ways. But I don't think we need to just jump to the conclusion every time there's something like this that it, we're just sitting on a spring waiting for the, the next attack that's going to take us all out. Um, is, is it possible that the Chinese have advanced their technology to some level like that, that they could disrupt our system, our, our power grid, our um, you know water filtration, all of that? I, I guess it's possible, but that would be considered a major attack on the United States. If the, if the U.S. could determine that an attack like that came from China, then we essentially would be at war with China because— and I don't think the Chinese want that right now. I mean, I think that's why they haven't moved on Taiwan. I don't think they're ready for an all-out confrontation with, with the United States and our allies. Um, but who, who knows? I mean, who would have thought that Vladimir Putin was ready to start a war with Ukraine? When the United States appears to be weak, a lot of our enemies take that as an opportunity to assert their authority in the world. And, of course, with President Biden in office, I mean— um, his weakness is apparent. Every time he goes up the steps to Air Force One, uh, it becomes an event if he actually makes it to the top without falling. And, and so when, when the Russians and the Chinese look at that, plus the decisions, of course, that Biden made pulling out of Afghanistan, uh, the disaster that that became, the abandonment of allies and, and, and is, is something that the rest of the world and certainly the enemies of the United States are paying attention to. Weakness breeds strength in our enemies. So yesterday, uh, though, at the same time that this was happening with, with our phones, then we find out today that pharmacies all over the country are experiencing delays in prescription orders due to a cyber attack on one of the biggest healthcare technology companies in the nation, and that's Change Healthcare. 
Now, Change Healthcare is not speculating. They don't have a conspiracy theory. They say that it's not in doubt that the problems that they're facing in their systems have been caused by a cyber attack. In a statement, Change Healthcare said, quote, Change Healthcare is experiencing a network interruption related to a cybersecurity issue, and our experts are working to, um, to address the matter. Once we become aware of the outside threat, in the interest of protecting our partners, uh, we became aware, rather, in the interest, interest of protecting our partners and patients, we took immediate action to disconnect our systems to prevent further impact. And that's basically all they've said. And it's they're, they're hoping that they're going to be able to get everything back online. Now, what does this mean? Well, it means some people can't get their prescriptions because you can't process the pr prescriptions without the computer, and their computers have been hacked, and they've had to shut them down. And we don't know where this attack came from. We know it was a cyber attack. This wasn't a software glitch. This wasn't a we messed up because we didn't apply our systems properly problem. This is an outside attack, and when they realized that, they shut everything down until they could figure out how to stop it. So um, it, it's, it, it's interesting. I mean, I, is this some kind of prelude? Is this some probing I mean, what it what what this seems to me, it could be CCC, uh, CCP proxies, that is Chinese government proxies that are testing to see if uh, you know who they can disrupt and how far it can go, um, or it could be totally unrelated. I mean, it could we don't we don't know where it comes from. So I think until we know, we don't need to get into conspiracy mode. Um, or conspiracy theory mode, or, and, and we don't need to be speculating to the point that we give, give ourselves a nervous breakdown uh, trying to think about where all the cyber attacks are coming from until we have more information. But it is, it, it's a, I mean, it's a scary thought when, when you think about how dependent we are on electronic devices. I mean, uh, it, it really, you know, it can make us think twice. All right, um, I wanted there was a story yesterday I was going to get into and didn't and I ran out of time. Uh, this is Christian Schneider writing at National Review, and the title of this piece is "America is Running Two Presidential Elections at Once." And the subtitle he's talking about he explains he says one question is who will win in 2024, Biden or Trump, but the other is who's going to be president in 2026. See that Schneider thinks that neither one of these candidates are going to make it more than two years, that Biden will have to step aside because of health reasons, and that President Trump could have an, a health issue that would cause him to step aside, but more likely it's going to be a legal issue that could interfere with his abilities. Um, you know, here's, here's the, uh, just a little bit of what Schneider said yesterday. Every day the American public is pummeled with stunning, often unprecedented news stories. And like Lucille Ball trying to sort conveyor belt chocolates, the rapid appearance of these events overwhelms us all. Regular Americans are busy raising their kids, holding down jobs, and solving murders from their home computers. I have no idea what that is. There must be some kind of trend that's going on that I've missed. But hardly anyone has the time to sit down to thoughtfully reflect on what's about to happen to our country over the next nine months. Specifically, most of the news we hear is framed in terms of how it affects the November election. Horse race coverage is the easiest for busy people to take in, so it dominates cable news discussions. 
That's absolutely true. There are, there are a lot of stories percolating under the presidential election story. Who's going to be in charge of the House? Are Republicans going to be able to take back the Senate? Because those are important questions, just as important as who's going to be at the top of the ticket, who's going to be elected president. But you don't hear near as much about that, and we hear almost nothing about the vice president, except everybody wants to speculate speculate rather who's who Trump's running mate is going to be. And I think that's fine. I mean, uh, you know, I'm interested in that, but I'm interested in it for the reason reason that Christian Snyder is interested in it. It's beyond likely. It's actually very possible that either way, Biden or Trump, the vice president is going to be president in two years. And we already know who Biden's vice president is. We know who we're going to get. We're going to get Kamala Harris, who got like 3% of the vote in the, in the Democrat primary when she ran for office. She may be the only person in the country that has a, a lower approval rating than Biden. The last I saw, Biden was at 39%, which is abysmal, but Kamala Harris was like at 32%. And she very well could be president if Biden is reelected. So that the question, who's going to be president in 2026, is pretty interesting. And I, I, I think it deserves us to, to take a look at it. Um, Trump recently, when he was in Greenville, he, he talked about who his main candidates are. Um, and I, I, think, I don't think he's gaslighting. I mean, I think he's telling the truth about who he likes and who's on the short list. And his short list is pretty simple. It's Tim Scott, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, it's Vivek Ramaswamy, so three of the people that were running against him uh, for the nomination are on the list. And then add to that Byron Donalds from Florida, Christy Nome of South Dakota, and Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. Now, maybe the one that's surprising to me, and, may, and I don't guess it should be, but is Tulsi Gabbard. Um, and, and I'd have to think about that one. She was a Democrat. Uh, she's become an independent and she's become very popular, at least for about a year. And I haven't heard—I haven't heard a whole lot about her lately. But uh, she does have a podcast that's doing quite well. And President Trump says now she's elevated to the short list, so a good possibility that she could be considered for vice president. And I, I'm trying to think, going down this list, who do I think has the best chance at being VP? You know, uh, you can forget conventional wisdom when it comes to Trump because he's not going to, I don't think he's going to take into consideration the number of electoral votes that could come that maybe he could get helped from a certain state. South Dakota's going to be for Trump. So if he picks Christy Nome, it's not going to be because he's trying to bring that state into the fold to get him elected. Um, South Carolina's going to be for Trump. So if he picks Tim Scott, same thing. Uh, it's not going to move the needle much. Um, I don't think Vivek Ramaswamy would make a huge difference, electorally speaking. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard, I mean, there's no way Hawaii is going to go for Trump uh, regardless. I mean, that, that a lot of the progressives, of course, in Hawaii have thrown Tulsi Gabbard under the bus, but a lot of conservatives have embraced her. So that would be an interesting pick. Um, 
So what about um, Byron Donalds? Well, he's Florida. So that's not going to be. And same thing with DeSantis. So none of those on the short list fit any of the traditional understanding of why you would pick a VP. And that's actually a good thing because it's President Trump said the number one qualification for him is that who could step into the role of, of being president and handle that. Now, I don't know, know enough about Byron Donalds to say yes or no, but I can tell you this, the rest of those candidates on the list, I'd be concerned about Vivek Ramaswamy. I think I'm, I'm not a big fan. I think there's, uh, you know, I, I've got concerns about him stepping in. But Tim Scott, absolutely, I think he could be president. Uh, Christy Nome, uh, yes. Ron DeSantis, he was my, essentially, he was my pick. I wanted him um, uh, to be the nominee. So I think he would make a good president. So, and, and Tulsi Gabbard, I don't, I don't really have any question about her ability to step in. So any of those, I think, would be good. Uh, but there's some other people on the list that are, haven't been, that Trump didn't necessarily mention when he said, this is my short list. But you got to remember that his short list may not be the list that he chooses from. In fact, it could. There's some people sitting out there that others say have a better shot at getting the vice president nod from Trump than even the ones that he put on his short list. And one of those is Elise Stefanik. I mean, when ever since she sort of got ele was elevated to the third position in Republican leadership. Um, when uh, Cheney got ousted, and and St then Stefanik has been sort of a rising star, and she's been one of the strongest Trump cheerleaders out there. So I think Elise Stefanik is still on the list. I think it's a, a possibility he would pick her. Um, there, uh, CBS News speculates that it'd be uh, Doug Burgum from North Dakota. I don't think there's any way that he gets picked. I I, I mean I think he ran a decent campaign. Uh, he made, um, you know, not really a splash, but I think he got some people's attention in the Republican debates. He, he, he seemed to be good at uh, a good communicator, but there's no way that Trump picks him. Another interesting possibility is uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Now, the thing that makes me think that it won't be Sanders is that I don't think she wants it. Um, in fact, the former Trump administration official, current governor of Arkansas, uh, is certainly a young conservative. She's 41, youngest governor in the country. She's definitely a rising star, but she dismissed the idea of serving as vice president. When asked by Face the Nation uh, moderator, let's see, I've got stuff popping up here on my screen. When asked by Face the Nation moderator Margaret Brennan if she'd say yes to joining the Trump ticket, Sanders said, quote, I'm honored to serve as governor, and I hope to get to do it for the next seven years. So, yeah, people say that, but and, and then they remain open, but I don't, I, I don't think she's interested. Um, I think she would make a good vice president. I really like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Her leadership in Arkansas— uh, has been aggressively conservative, and she's been able to get a lot done with school choice um, and other initiatives that I just think is going to make Arkansas in competition with Florida in terms of being sort of a, a superstar state for conservatives. 
Then you got former HUD secretary, Dr. Ben Carson. Uh, he's kind of, he was early on, he was really in the mix in the conversation, uh, not so much lately. So Carrie Lake has been on, on the list. I don't think he would pick Carrie Lake simply because the two of them are a lot alike. And I don't know that it would do Trump necessarily any good to have somebody that's very similar to his style on the ticket with him. I think Tim Scott would be a, a good choice simply because his personality and the way that he communicates is very different from President Trump. And I think the fact the fact that Trump picked Mike Pence last time helped him. Now, I know a lot of people are screaming and having a heart attack right now that I even said Mike Pence's name because they believe he's some kind of traitor. I, I think Pence was good for Trump. I think it was a balancing act. And I think Tim Scott could be the same way uh, if he was selected. Um, I'd love to see Ron DeSantis be vice president, but I don't see Trump picking him, and I don't see DeSantis – uh, accepting uh, if if Trump does pick him, simply because there was a lot of animosity between them, uh, you know, toward the end of the campaign, and I just I just don't know that that would work. So I I really think Gabbard, Tulsi Gabbard, Christy Nome, Tim Scott, I I would put those three, and I would throw Elise Stefanik in simply because it, it Trump may be kind of diverting attention away from the person that he's going to pick by throwing these names out there, not putting Stefanik on the list. Um, maybe there's some reason that he wouldn't like her. But I think the names that we've talked about, the, uh, that I've talked about this morning, those are the main ones. Could be one of those off the short list, could be one of those off to the off the expanded list that I've suspected that I've suggested. Uh, but it could be none of those, and Trump may just pick somebody out of the blue. Um, so we'll, time will tell who's right about that. Uh, we're heading into the primary, of course, tomorrow. South Carolinians go to vote, and it's a foregone conclusion. Uh, Trump's going to win South Carolina going away. Uh, he's uh, I, Nikki Haley, the last poll that I saw this week, had her at about 35%. I don't think she's going to break 40 um, I think Trump will win, and as, as President Trump would say, win bigly. Um, he's going to win the uh, South Carolina. And then what happens with Nikki Haley after? She says she's staying in the race. She's still getting millions of dollars. Uh, she's the candidate that wants to be hanging around in case something does happen with Trump that he can't uh, be the nominee because legal problems or whatever. And so she's hoping that the, uh, the party would turn to her. See, I don't, I don't even think that necessarily that the Republican Party would turn to her if something happened with Trump. They may, they, they may want to turn to somebody else. Um, but it, it does mean a lot. If, she's the, if everybody else has dropped out, then it would be difficult for the party to jump over her and pick somebody else if, if Trump stumbles or something happens with him. So that's the, that's the thought process. There's no way that Haley can win the nomination. I think she knows that. And I, think, I don't think she's going to win another state. But it is possible that something could happen that she could then step in. And I think that's been the, the plan with her and why she's still getting all this money coming in all along. I wanted to play just a couple of cuts for you, and then we're going to wrap it up for today. But uh, President Trump was speaking to the 
National Association, I think it was of Christian Broadcasters, uh, National Religious Broadcasters, um, and he talked about the persecution of Christians and how that if, if he's elected pres uh, president, he's going to put together a commission to make sure that Christian rights are being protected and that, that uh, the Justice Department is not continuing to go after Christians the way they have under Biden. Here's, here's what he said. For all Americans, but especially for Christians, nothing is more important than to defeat this wicked system and to return to fair, equal, and impartial justice under the constitutional rule of law. You have to return to the constitutional rule of law. Yeah, so uh, that got a big applause. That was a big applause line for the, for the president. Uh, and before that, he had asked how many Catholics there were in the room, and there were only a few people that raised their hand. He said, well, there's, there's a few. But he, then he, he got a big laugh when he said, well, maybe because the Biden administration has been going after Catholics so hard, maybe that's why there's not a whole lot of them here. Uh, they're busy in court. And so, you know, this is something, this is a line of, uh, in the campaign as far as protecting religious liberty that I think is going to garner a lot of support from evangelicals, from Christians, uh, for Trump. Um, I got a call yesterday from Christianity Today, and they were what they wanted to interview me about uh, South Carolina and about attitudes of evangelicals. And, and I told them, I said, "Look, I think a lot of Christians are concerned about the about religious liberty, and that the Justice Department appears to be have been weaponized against Christians." And um, so we'll see when that article comes out. Uh, hopefully, um, I'll be quoted correctly. But, um, you know, I, I, and, and of course, Christians are concerned about all the political issues that are on the table, immigration, uh, the economy, um, our national security because of the perceived weakness of the Biden administration. Talked about that a little bit today. We're concerned about all those things. But religious liberty is, has got to be at the top of a lot of people's list when you look at all of the, the ways that the Biden administration has pretty much targeted Christians. Um, when you've got these nine abortion protesters that simply peacefully showed up to protest and they're convicted of violating the FACE Act and they face years in prison and fines and when then you've got all these other protesters that have nothing to do with Christianity that the Justice Department seems totally uninterested in. And so it's things like this that make Christians step back and say, we need some kind of uh, protection from, from discrimination, particularly from the Justice Department. So here's Trump talking about the Constitution and how important the Constitution is. And then I've got this cut from President Biden, who pretty much was bragging about the fact that he did an end around to the Constitution uh, by being able to forgive all of this debt, uh, the student debt. And here's what, here's what he sounded like. Well, let's see if I can get it to work here. Here we go. Okay, so 
And then, then he, he makes that little at the end, like, look at me, you know, Supreme Court. Ah, let me just brush you away. I don't have any. We, we don't need any stinking laws. We don't we don't need the Supreme Court. We don't need the Constitution. This is all about MAGA. It's all about Republicans there and their MAGA allies. It, it's all about special interest. You know what it was about? It was about people that don't want to pay off the debt of other people. And the Constitution says that we don't we don't are not supposed to do that either, and that the President of the United States can't use his executive power to just transfer debt from one group to another. And yet the President hears that, and the Constitution becomes something that is just a hindrance, and he brushes it away. And then here we have President Trump talking about the constitutional protections for people of faith and how those protections have got to remain in place. It's a contrast. I mean, this election is going to come down. It's going to come down to Trump and Biden, likely. I mean, I get it. Uh, possibility Biden doesn't make it. They have to find a replacement simply because of what we're seeing in terms of his mental deterioration. Uh, could be uh, possibly that President Trump's legal issues, I mean, Alvin Bragg's going to be starting this trial in New York, and I've talked about the fact that I'm very concerned that Trump's going to be convicted. Uh, it, it, it's a state case, and so he can't just pardon himself if he were to get elected. Uh, the appeal process for that could be going on while people are going to vote, and that's going to affect um, the way some people, particularly independents, look at the election. Um, and I mean, it, it's not going to affect Trump supporters, but it's, it could affect some of the independents. And so, uh, you know, but still, with all of that in consideration, I still think this election comes down to Trump and Biden. And when it does, you've got... You've got President Trump, who's talking about defending the Constitution. And I know the people screaming about the fact the insurrection, he's an insurrectionist. He doesn't, he doesn't want to defend the Constitution. That, 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 that's just a bunch of propaganda. Uh, it's President Biden. If you want to look at where the Constitution is getting violated, look at the executive orders that the Supreme Court has had to strike down that President Biden has just decided, I'm going to ignore the Constitution and do what I want. And so, I mean, I, I, I think we need to pause and consider long and hard who, who we're going to vote for if we want the rule of law to remain the standard for everybody in this country. And we need to ask that we want the Justice Department selectively prosecuting people, some because of their faith, some because they're protecting the president, I mean, this is, that is one of the major issues to me in this election going forward. All right, that's all the time we're going to take today. I hope everybody has a great weekend. There's going to be plenty to talk about on Monday. We'll see what happens with um, over the weekend. There's always plenty of news taking place, and so I hope you'll plan to join me at 7.30. We'll have the, the David Bonson interview. I'm hoping that we're going to be able to get that next week. We're also going to have... Major Frank O'Neill from South Carolina Law Enforcement Division on next week uh, to talk about medical marijuana and what that would do to South Carolina if that were to get passed in the House. So I hope you'll join us, and I hope you'll have a great weekend in between. Don't forget, if you're watching on Facebook, be sure to like and share the show. And thank you for watching on YouTube. And if you download the podcast, be sure to leave me a good review if you enjoy it. God bless you, and have a great weekend.